what is horrible capitalist bullshit nightmare and what is just like a human impulse that has been with humans since humans existed. Greetings, hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now-ish. I'm Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm so excited about the interview we have today. So this author is Lydia Kiesling. We are talking about her new book, Mobility, which just came out on August 1st. I can't remember if I've mentioned, I loved Lydia's first book too, The Golden State, her first yeah, novel. And I feel it's the sort of thing that I feel like I have mentioned on the podcast, but I can't remember if I actually have. You've, you and I have definitely talked about it. Yeah. 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 Which made it even more of a bummer that I, I wasn't able to be there for the interview. I had sudden childcare duties come up, but I listened to the interview and I think it's really, really great. And it's a really great book too. It's a fantastic And it is like what's happening right now. Well, happening to people like us, I guess especially right now. It's a story about kind of complicity in climate change. It's about getting older with these kinds of investments. It's a long-lensed view on how Americans who just want nice things and comfort are actually ruining the world. Yeah, yeah. It's basically what's happening in the long right now, right? It's it's a... It's, yeah. I like Unusually that. ambitious in terms of its temporal stretch, I would say, for a contemporary novel. But like you always get the point that it's driving at, which is like totally. the long right now in which we find ourselves where we shouldn't be doing the things that we're nevertheless doing. And we shouldn't be part of the institutions that we're nevertheless sort of selling out to. Yeah, I felt very seen by this book, I gotta say. I was going to say, not that that's like a topic you and I have any sort of personal no, attachment no. or resonance with. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, as we sit here working for the organization that produced both the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Jewel, I have a special place in my heart for Lydia as a person for a couple different reasons. One of them relates back to Stanford, which is that she came and sat on the first panel I ever organized when you hired me as like a guest speaker in 2017. That's right, she did. And Lydia is the, well, this is a funny story to say for this, but she's the last person who would ever be judgmental of childcare problems because she also has two kids similar ages to mine and for that panel. She did that panel with a six-week-old on her chest, which oh, was incredible. So Lydia right, doesn't yeah. let child care problem. No, I'm totally kidding. I'm yeah, I should have I should have strapped over to my to my chest. Uh <laughs> she's two and a half. She would have loved that. Oh uh, yeah, River would not yeah, the fuck's a bobby snug in the ergo. Ergo, yeah, what the fuck's an ergo baby exactly? What the fuck is an ergo baby? Yeah, Lydia and I had kids around the same time, actually in the same neighborhood. We used to be neighbors in San Francisco, so I have a very special place in my heart for her and her family, and also for her writing about motherhood and family, which is right. like just a fantastic part of who she is as a writer. Even though this book, I was not disappointed that this book is not as concerned with motherhood, but I still saw the keen view of motherhood like sandwiched within it. Yeah. Well, something that we're thinking about, like whether or not in some way putting too much family in it, like this is more about like siblinghood, I would say, than like about... And lineage. It's a book about lineage more than like the first year of motherhood, of yeah. legacy Which, and ancestry. If I had been there, I would have loved to ask her whether that's to some extent strategic, because of course we often use parenthood 
as an excuse. Well, you know, I should fly because it's like she has to see her grandparents. Or like, mm-hmm. well, I just created an entire garbage island of my own. But like, you know, what are you going to do about diapers, right? Like, it's 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 this big way where you're like you're giving yourself a pass. It's like, oh, you know, and then you're like, well, it's their future. I'm like filling with plastic here. Not sure, not sure this really counts. You know, like maybe they should just shit on the floor once or twice. <laughs> um, so like, you know, I I think I think I wonder if that's strategic. If she if she just kind of like didn't want that muddying the waters there. That's so interesting. I, I was just thinking like, that's the future liberals want is one in which bare ass kids are shitting on the floor and calling it environmentalism. That's I mean, right. I, I'm mostly for it. I think we can. Yeah. 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 And those children, of course, would be like between the ages of zero and 17. Yes. At any point yeah. in that continuum. Yeah. yeah. Litter boxes in every school, <laughs> in every classroom. Litter boxes. I mean, my kids just went back to school. Maybe this is something for like the next PTA meeting. I have a uh, environmentalism oriented suggestion, guys. Well, I mean, you know that like, according to conservatives, there are litter boxes in San Francisco classrooms or in, in liberal well, yeah, classrooms. Yeah, of course, because because gay marriage is, is barely a half step removed from just marrying your dog. So everybody knows that that equivalency it's is right there. because children allegedly identify as cats. This is a meme that goes oh, around on, on, right. on right-wing Twitter the all new, the time. This is, this is like, there, are, there yeah. are like members of Congress who weighed in on this alleged problem. And it's like, yeah, I got some news for you, buddy. It, it's not happening. Um, but anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. If Fox News needs a soundbite, that is the future that these two liberals want. <laughs> I mean, listen, if if they're coming to us for those, they're going to mine us for some gold. You know, oh, yeah. like, I think we, yeah. could, we could wrap up a full week for them. Yeah. Well, anyway, Lydia and I covered so much ground. You know, you we, did. we talked you about did. the 90s and girlhood. We talked about the sort of internets of the early aughts and 2010s we talked a lot about the sopranos in a way that shot thrill through my heart mm-hmm. so once again the book is mobility i personally think you should all read it oh yeah and um this interview will also be more fun once you have but anyway thank you for joining us yet again and uh, adrian do you have any other from your other podcast updates that you want to share we're chugging along the other podcast is ch- chugging along we're currently looking at masculinity which I don't know if you heard, but it's in crisis. I haven't heard a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're so lonely. I was, I was shocked too. Uh, I was like, there was just living my masculine life, my best masculine life, and then suddenly, my masculine life out of nowhere, a crisis hits. <laughs> I feel lonely. Where is a woman to fix this? Yeah, it's like I'm bowling by myself. <laughs> I can't even picture you. I am curious about Andrew Tate. Help me. I'm not. That's not it. No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so we're we're talking about masculinity. We're talking, and we're really going way back. We're going to do an episode about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche this week. We're going to talk about Carl Jung. Going to talk about some psychoanalysis. Nerds on fire. It's going to be amazing. And we just recorded an episode with... Friend of the pod, Susan Stryker, about the sort of turfy urtext. This is Janice Raymond's The Transsexual Empire. Whomst uh, would I rather hear? 78 or 9, I forget now, but like it's somewhere in there. It's all the stuff that you see in J.K. Rowling's Twitter feed, but 42 years ago. (laughs) Um, You know how they say, get new material. 
they did not, in fact, get new material. Doesn't. Oh my god, Susan Stryker on all of this is a dream. Well played. It's going to be good. We recorded it in her office, and it was long. It was intense. It was super fun. It was also ninety degree, <laughs> degrees because like we've been having a little bit of a heat wave. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a literal barn burner. It sure will. A spikely hottest day of the summer. Yeah. Well. Anyway, thank you for joining us for this one. We have a couple of more author conversations coming up. Very excited about those. Mm -hmm. And thank you for checking this out. And please go by Mobility. Go by Mobility. Hit us with your requests for future author interviews on, you know, whatever social media situation you find us trapped in. Here's me talking to Lydia Kiesling. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm so excited about this book. So this book, Mobility, it just came out on August 1st. How has like the the path been so far? Have you been touring? Have you been doing readings? Like, what's it like? It has been great. I did do a tour. I did some events on the West Coast, and then I flew to the East Coast and did some events there. You know, the first one got canceled due to extreme weather. (laughs) So that was, you know fitting oh i saw your instagram you were like sitting there in a blowout on your on your yes. instagram <laughs> your, your hair looked had, great That's a thank you <laughs> yes i had been getting the blowout when i received the call that Stop. they were at you know in an abundance of caution they were because it was a, a tornado warning which washington dc does not usually get i mean probably best to take that seriously yeah given the scope of your book <laughs> yeah you know so that was kind of an inauspicious way to begin. But then, you know, after that, it was great. I went sort of up the East Coast. I then my last event of that, like I flew to Houston Perfect. and had like a really interesting crowd there. And then, yeah, now I'm back home just kind of like acclimating and dealing with this is this is like my younger child's is starting kindergarten, but apparently now kindergarten involves like a week long sort of soft launch. What? <laughs> so it's like, what does that entail? Like on Wednesday, she's going for a 20 minute meeting with her teacher, which is great. You know, she can meet the teacher, but it's from nine to nine twenty on Wednesday. And that's the only thing that they're doing for your child on Wednesday. Yeah. And then, you know, so, you know, she's not at, like, today's her last day of preschool. And anyway, so we, I'm just sort of, reacclimating to uh life and yeah i'll have one more i'm gonna go to city lights with eden lapucky in a couple weeks and i think that's my last kind of traveling event that is very exciting i just got my kids back to school and i feel like there was like an especially long gully between camp and school this year and um i I was ready for those children to return to learning lydia yes Yes, I was ready. Um, my youngest is now. Wait, yeah, I think our youngest. Did you say your youngest is just starting kindergarten? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine too. And that's like a milestone, right? Like yeah. I felt, I felt feels about that. How have you been feeling? I feel sad. I mean, I, I'm feeling really sad to leave her preschool because it's just been, yeah. Both my kids went there in some capacity. It was like the older kids' after school program. It's been their camp. I mean, you know, it'll still like exist, and we 
have a relationship with them, I'm sure. But yeah, it just feels like the end of an era and it's sad. But I'm also scared because we're deciding not to do aftercare this year because we're kind of like, this is the first year that we're not going to pay preschool tuition in eight years. Yep. You're getting like a third income back in your house. <laughs> I know. But if you if you do aftercare for two kids, mm-hmm. then you're creeping back up into the I'm aware that like the trade-off we've made is like pretending that my time is not money. <laughs> um, yeah. but, and I'm a little, I am kind of spiraling about it because I generally, I just don't make the most of my work time on any day. And mm-hmm. when I have less time, it's not like I make better time of that necessarily. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, for at least financially, it's just a big, a big change. I mean, that's a positive change. What what time will their school day end then? Oh, at 2.15. Okay. Settle <laughs> up. All right. <laughs> um, amazing. Yeah, I am paying out my ass for that aftercare for two children right now. So I know exactly the fucking calculus you're describing. And you're like, nope, this is not as much cheaper than private preschool or private daycare than I was hoping. And America still hates families. Yeah, it's awful. Okay, so the transition I'm building is wanting to talk about your book, obviously. But I'm also like, I deeply relate to your obsession with The Sopranos. <laughs> And I know know from your Instagram that sometimes during periods of high anxiety, like the Sopranos creeps in, which is something I deeply, deeply identify with. So I guess the first question I have is like, if you, Lydia, had to describe yourself in like the Sopranos tarot, who would you be? So like what I would describe myself as maybe like a Christopher Sun, Carmela Rising... Um, what's her name? Lady Shylock. Uh, L- L- Lorraine, L- Lorraine. Lorraine Moon. That's where I would go. How would you describe yourself? Wow, that is a fascinating question. Lorraine Caluso, Lady Shylock. That's the name. Sorry, it took minutes to come. Um, I, I think I sort of aspire to some aspects of Carmela. I mean, I just am very fascinated by Carmela, mm-hmm. but really have more feel like I have the the work ethic of a Christopher. The ability to get things done and have um, good planning uh, of a Christopher. <laughs> What's my arc? What's the, the, the fucking regularness of life? It's just a lot much. of yeah. days on my worst days. I feel like Livia. Yeah. She Livia like haunts me when I'm not feeling like my best, like maternal self. I'm like, Oh, well, there's Livia. Poor you. Poor you. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a great question. But it is funny. I I recently, like, I haven't watched it in a while. And by a while, I mean, like, probably like 11 months. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a while for me, too. But this past week, I was like, you know what? I need to just throw on the pilot and get back on the horse. It's time, Lydia. Back (laughs) to school. Back to David Chase. Yeah. Okay, so this is actually my transition because I was thinking a lot about (laughs) anti-hero 2000 and 2010s TV as I was reading Mobility. And one of the single, there were so many like, oh, touche Lydia, that was so good moments. One of them was at one point, Bunny and I think the guy she's dating Mm -hmm. at the time are watching Homeland. And I was like, nailed it, Lydia. This is exactly the corollary. I thought about Homeland so much as I was reading and as I was digesting this that I had to go back and watch some of the first season. And boy, was that a resonant corollary. So I guess in Sopranos terms or just in your terms, how would you describe Bunny Glenn? I have many thoughts, but I want to hear yours. One of the most interesting things about publishing this book is that now 
you know, she's out in the world and mm-hmm. being received in all different ways. Someone wrote a Goodreads review this weekend that just said, wow, she sucks. But 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 four stars. So I was like, all right, well, you know, thanks. <laughs> okay, I guess we'll um, take it. Because okay. a lot of people who are a lot of people are like, oh, I hate this character, and like also as a consequence, like don't like the book or like think the book is bad. You know, so I appreciated that this person like didn't like the character, but it didn't seem to like undermine their enjoyment of the book. So I'd say Bunny. It's actually sorry. This is a very rambling answer, but I hadn't even thought about like there's certain sort of texts and shows and like ideas that I think about when I think about the book as sort of having directly influenced it. But honestly, the Sopranos is what I was really watching a lot, like during some of the kind of intensive periods of like marinating on the book, especially during like peak COVID time when I wasn't really working on it on a daily basis. Like I couldn't not, wasn't really like was absolutely not, but was kind of thinking about it and like resenting it. And that was my peak Sopranos watching time. So there is actually, and I I just thought the other day, I was like, wow, it's so funny that the Sopranos doesn't sort of figure into my like pantheon of influences for the book. But honestly, the way that I watch the Sopranos is sort of similar to how I might think about bunny, like differently. I mean, I, you know, don't have a lot in common with Tony Soprano, but, but I do, you know, he is like, he has to sustain that show. You know, there's other characters like doing a lot of work and people who we like become attached to, or say, even if you set Tony aside, cause I actually watch for mm-hmm. Carmela, like I think sometimes more than I, <laughs> I watch for Tony. Same. Um, same. And yep. Carmela is someone I just like love as a character and like do like truly like empathize with in moments and, sort of relate to in moments and kind of like she has this sort of like iconic status but she's also really terrible and like does compromised yeah yeah she actively chooses violence (laughs) in a lot of cases so I think honestly you know she's actually more of like sort of an honest broker with herself than than Bunny is in some moments but I'm just kind of like spiraling about this because I've been thinking a lot about like Bunny's kind of likability Bunny is someone who you know is a she's a white millennial woman, an elder millennial, you know, born in that like 83, 84 mm-hmm. range. She's very representative of a, of a micro generation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She grows up in a somewhat unusual circumstance of the foreign service. So she's fairly kind of like isolated a lot of her childhood or, or in a very kind of insular environment with her immediate family, living in places that are unfamiliar to her. The book starts when she's a teenager she, as a consequence of being a foreign service brat, goes to a, an elite prep school that the federal government pays for. It's like not the kind of school she would have gone to otherwise, necessarily. Um, and yeah, that's where she sort of learns a kind of like class aspiration and um, desire, I guess, that that does, you know, kind of follow her throughout life. Mm-hmm. And then the book follows her into her kind of mid 20s she's flailing it's the recession she's looking for work she's an english major she doesn't have a lot of like readily identifiable options she ends up working as a temp at an engineering company and then sort of through just a series of kind of accidents ends up working at a small uh family oil company and then that's where she like kind of makes her career and ends up in a role, a sort of like storytelling communications role that she builds for herself mm-hmm. because honestly, she kind of is inhabiting more of like an assistant, like executive assistant kind of 
Girl Friday, like general helper role. I share a lot of DNA with her. She's very close to my experience in a lot of ways, especially her early life. Mm -hmm. She has a kind of like hapless quality that I really (laughs) identify with and for much of life. Mm -hmm. But I kind of thought about someone like myself who didn't end up what I, I feel so blessed that I found sort of writing as a like vocation and calling like around the same time that money is flailing. And, you know, I flailed a lot myself and continue to like flail in one professional direction while also kind of doing writing on the side. But Bunny never finds her other thing. So all of her kind of creative and intellectual energies get put into sort of achieving in the place where she finds herself. So yeah, I mean, I put a lot of myself into her. So you know, I can't just say like, Oh, I hate her. She's awful. But a lot of the things that I put into her are sort of things that I've seen from myself in the past that I'm, you know, most sort of like ashamed of or qualities that I think are sometimes kind of like encouraged in white millennial women, which are very easy to kind of go along with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I obviously feel like a, a kinship with Bunny. And so, you know, for someone who is very similar to me or is in my micro generation shares my kind of background, then yes, like she can have a sort of universal quality of like a very Mm -hmm. small (laughs) within that very narrow sphere. But I certainly, you know, wasn't writing her to be like, we are all her because I know there are lots of people who aren't like her, you know, and I've met them and have been influenced by them as I've gotten older. Um, So yeah, it's funny. Sometimes people like, like her a lot. And I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I'm glad you like her, but like, we have to try to do better than her sometimes. But then when people really are like, well, she's just horrible and I also think it's funny when men are kind of like she's horrible (laughs) because I'm like yeah you know that's fine but understand that a lot of her experience is shaped by she lives in a patriarchal society and there's like there are many currents of misogyny that she kind of encounters and that you know that certainly doesn't like excuse her from any of her choices but it does affect the like quality of her choices certainly so interesting so i i did not hate bunny at all i deeply identified with her as much as i perceived her as like ethically ambivalent and it was really interesting like even just hearing the way you described her taught me more about how attached I feel to her because as you were describing, for example, her like rise at the family oil company as a series of accidents, the internal monologue in my head was like, she worked really hard for that, Lydia. She was talented. She was good at proofreading. She distinguished herself, you know, (laughs) which I think is all true or at least evidenced by the text. And she's also working for big oil and sort of splitting the ethical difference over and over again in her head about like, well, it's a family business. Well, they're moving to renewable energy. Like she finds all these equivocations for herself that are like really complicated, Mm -hmm. even as much as she is, as you say, a product of her geopolitical and like structural conditions. I just think that's so interesting. Why did you write about oil? Like I I saw some of like how your research (laughs) progressed on like social media throughout this. And I was like, what is she doing? It's going to be so interesting, but why is Lydia reading all these books? Like how did your lens get trained on oil as like sort of her tableau, Bunny's tableau? Well, I mean, it's definitely, it, it, there are some sort of specific places where it runs through my life. So my dad's family is from Houston, um, Mm -hmm. both sides. So, you know, there's some like oil connection there. And so it's something that I've thought about before, But, but honestly, I was not planning to write about it until I guess I was, first I, I wanted to write about someone like Bunny who had this upbringing that I had, but it was really important to me to kind of add context to 
like a broader context to that sort of like foreign service upbringing. So wherever she was going to be living, like I wanted the bigger story. Cause I think, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about our generation is that we, our parents were like cold war babies, but we are not, you know, they were cold war adults, not or teens. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to like parse the exact, but like, you know, they're from the cold war and we are from the war on terror like that. And, yeah. and that pivot occurred when we were teenagers um, in a really profound way. And so I wanted a way to also just kind of talk about that. And like, when I think about sort of the nineties and late nineties and early two thousands, I was thinking a lot as I kind of reached like middle adulthood about just kind of how grotesque, like a lot of the sort of cultural stew was of that time period. As you reach adulthood and you start to situate yourself in these like really awful systems that become more and more apparent and you, you know, start to like interrogate your own role in them, you know, part of that is in some ways that are kind of justifying is like looking back and being like, wow, this is what we like these were the movies that people thought were funny. These were the mm-hmm. magazines mm-hmm. that people subscribed to. Like, and so I, the casual slurs that teenagers used as yes. like gave them critical thinking to. I think you invoked Monica Lewinsky in the first 20 pages, which was another really yes. true reference. Like, yes. I know exactly what <laughs> studio you described. Yes. So I was really like interested in thinking about that, but then trying to figure out how to like make a story out of that in a way that's not just like, look at all these things that sucked, like, and continue to suck, you know, cause mm-hmm. I didn't, I wanted to write a book that would be interesting. And that was like a work of art and a work of fiction. And yeah, it was just hard to find kind of the through line. Um, but I did, there, I, I went on this sort of digression where I read this book called the oil and the glory by the journalist named Steve Levine. And I, he does a really good job telling the story of like basically BP and Chevron going to war over who was going to like get the Caspian oil reserves after the collapse Mm -hmm. of the Soviet union. And he did it such a good job, like describing the individual characters who were involved. I was like, Oh my God, there's so many stories here. This is what I want to write about. Like, this is actually the novel that I want to write. So I kind of went off on these, like I wrote these like pretty awful vignettes of just like thinly veiled like fictionalized sort of versions of some of these people he had written about. And, you know, of course, they're all men. They're all like middle-aged white men or almost exclusively. And, but I, that wasn't really working either. Like, I just don't have that sort of like Shakespeare mind where I can turn these people into some like kind of intricate plot without just like literally kind of copying the events of history in a way that is chaotic and, you know, <laughs> doesn't like lend itself well. Arguably that's what Shakespeare also did, but true. Yes. Yeah. But like, you could like make things rhyme. Um, so I, you know, kind of went in that direction. And then I basically was like, okay, but let me pull it back because really I do want to talk about like what it's like to be a teenage girl in that stew what is the world that we find ourselves in as we get older? What are the kind of choices in this world? And so then I just kind of was like, all right, well, how do I make the oil story? How do I make those big oil things part of her story? And then I had to put them into other people's like mouths basically and sort of sneak them in and tuck them in. And it actually became like a little bit meta because I gave Bunny my own sort of feeling of overwhelm while trying to read through all these stories and sort of understand them and contextualize them. I sort of gave that to her and that's how I was able to like sneak it in. So I did like write an oil novel. It's not the one that I had like hoped to write, but basically it was just like the narrative, the narrative opportunities were 
so compelling. And also like even feeling that those narrative opportunities were compelling made me feel complicit because then you're like, you're like, why are like, why should I read something about like BP and Chevron, you know, some of the most like evil, like kind of notorious players on our global stage? Why should I feel like compelled by the story of them kind of jockeying in this like very sort of weird neo-colonial way, like at this specific moment in history. That's another thing that I kind of wanted to explore because there is something about the story of like oil and energy and fossil fuels that can be exciting, like depending on whose perspective you're coming at it from. And so that's sort of another way that I was kind of like, oh, well, here's yet another like layer to kind of interrogate about this. Yeah, I don't know. I think as, when you're writing a book, you're just kind of like, trying to create the conditions so that you can finish it. And so then it just starts, all these weird things happen. Cause you're just like, yeah. well, in order for me to like write today, I have to like make it easy. So, you know, so it's just like, I'm going to jam this thing together with this other thing. And then, yeah, sometimes you just end up with something where it's, you're not really quite sure how you got there. Oh God. I was just talking about this with my students. I have grad students who come in and work with me on like long form book or long essay projects over the summer. And they're so smart and they're so talented and they come in with these ambitions that are like, I'm going to write a novel this summer, you know, like I'm going to write a full draft this summer. Bless. Okay. Or sort of intellectually lofty aspirations, you know, which I totally relate to and understand. And we have so many conversations about like, how about you write the book you can finish, you know, like rather than reinventing the genre, how about you finish a book, you know, <laughs> like every author has some version of that reckoning of like the book that you had in your mind's eye at the beginning of the process is almost never going to be what results at the yes. end. But I actually, what you said about sort of like inhabiting Bunny's overwhelm and using it as a narrative opportunity, narrative opportunity felt like a really rich word. Like that to me was the success of why the book didn't feel didactic. You know, like I left the reading experience feeling like I genuinely learned a lot about the sort of geopolitical machinations of oil and the like post-Soviet class oil gold rush. Like all of that was stuff I didn't know but it didn't come off as preachy or didactic. And that is hard to do, Lydia, you know? And so I think putting it through the POV of a, of like a bored, horny 15-year-old girl who just doesn't want to be at this boring party again was brilliant, brilliant way in for the reader that I like really identified with. I mean, just the way you're talking about the way she inhabits these very patriarchal environments, which I thought was brilliant and so interesting. And just putting the POV at this 15 year old girl, looking at these sort of messy Ivy league Mm -hmm. men automatically kind of takes them down a notch, you know, like there's a way in which she's revering them because she's horny, (laughs) but there's also a way in which she's like, these guys, like these guys are the guys who fucking run the world (laughs) that I just like loved and felt so true to exactly the milieu you're describing of like, oh yeah, these kind of medium smart people have like a pretty outsized influence on like everything that happens. But like, I would love to hear you talk a little bit in particular about Charlie mm-hmm. Kovac as a character because he he jumped off the he's a character I don't want to spoil but like he appears early in the novel in kind of like a small but significant way and he just jumped off the page in vivacity as a character so much that I was like I know this guy is coming back and I can't wait to find out how but like how did you conceive of this guy he's kind of he's kind of like Bunny's foil almost. yes um you know he 
so you know bunny's watching all these men who include charlie um sort of like young adventurer type white american and british guys who are also you know in in azerbaijan in 1998 for various yeah. reasons making documentaries yeah. publishing independent newsletters yeah, yeah. I loved it. one thing that i thought about a lot when i was writing the book is madame bovary how mm-hmm. yeah you know Flaubert, like, obviously hates all the people who are around Madame Bovary, but, like, and, and and is really sort of satirizing, like, a certain kind of petty, like, provincial kind of mindset. But but it's still, like, Madame Bovary, who's the one who you're, like, sort of end up thinking about at the end and whose, like, blame is, like, put on her. And, yes, like, she makes awful choices. And so, yeah, it's, like, all the men in the book are sort of the people who are, like noticed along the way but at the end it's still about whether people like will be like i'm mad at bunny like bunny sucks and it's like what about all these other people that (laughs) we saw but but like i sort of created those conditions too because charlie i it was really important to me that there be someone who embodied the way that somebody can be sort of right about a lot of things and have like great politics in some ways and be very clear-eyed but also be like a complete piece of shit yeah Particularly a misogynist piece of shit. Usually the way that vaunted liberal men are allowed to continue being revered and yet be shitty. Yes. Yes. So there, you know, it shows his like newspaper that he makes. He's making a newspaper in the former Soviet States, which is like loosely based on another like magazine that two journalists made in Moscow in the same period. It is not, you know, it's obviously a work of fiction, but like I cite theirs and like the works consulted. So obviously like that's a bit of an influence. Um, And yeah, like you get like a glimpse of the newspaper that he's working on. It's like full of like sexist and racist stuff and sort of- All the intercock, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like deployed in service of, in that total sort of 90s way of like, it's not racist or sexist or homophobic if it's used in service of, you know, some Mm -hmm. other point, which was 70% of like a lot of kind of what was considered like edgy popular humor at that time. God, yes. So you meet him then and Bunny's meeting him then. And he's this kind of like doomsday prophet like he is right about a lot of stuff. He is sort of sees clearly the the geopolitical dynamics, but he's mm-hmm. also like very clearly doing shitty things in his personal life and he's a dick. And yeah, then she meets him again in adulthood and he's, you know, sort of like his beat has changed. He's not talking so much about like oil. He's moved on to like the war on terror and and again is like incredibly clear-eyed about that and and correct. But you still sort of have the sense that his personal life, like, is probably very messy. And he, you know, sort of makes the point, like, well, why, you know, why does that matter? Even I sort of became fond of him <laughs> in, the, in the writing of the book. Yeah, so yeah. He's a dick and I still, like, would have a drink with him. Yeah. Yeah. And which to me also is part of the kind of, like, gendered unfairness and even, and like, women often are complicit in their own sort of subjugation by this, like, type of personality because you're like, oh, but you know what? He's still, like, he's kind of an awesome guy in some ways. So I, you know, was kind of like aware that I was doing it while I was doing it, but still I was kind of like, I just couldn't like turn him like too shitty. Um. This is is deeply relatable to me. I'm trying to connect a couple dots right now. The dots I'm trying to connect are the edgy inappropriate humor of the late nineties and early two thousands that you were just naming, which the book captures so brilliantly. And like, 
this is another thing I talk about to my students, like being earnest on Maine was not a thing, you know, until like post 2010, the early Gawker internet was so snarky and mean and racist and sexist and awful. And it was like this jousting game to see how awful you could get away with being sort of as, as the book's dialogue, I feel like captures really brilliantly. But I was also thinking about Meadow Soprano and Charlie Kovacs. I was thinking about how, like, if I had to draw Sopranos tarot for Bunny, I think Meadow is who's coming up most strongly. Like, the person who is negotiating the morality choices of her parents, the person who is sort of Carmela in training whether she wants to be or not just because of her conditions, the person who considers herself sort of morally superior to her parents while being just as ambivalent as they are in many ways. And then, like, in particular, in the sort of, like, culmination scene when she re-meets Charlie, which I have to say, like, the way you cast that, like, the, the way that they re-meet was perfect. Like, that's exactly how they would re-meet. <laughs> There's a sense in which it's, like, the way Bunny is delivering her impassioned justification of her, like, upwardly mobile career in Big Oil to him is, like, well, of course he is who she's always been building a case for. Yeah. You know? He is the foil that has to be the audience for that argument. Like he represents the thing that makes her feel icky about doing it. And so like there there was just a positioning of those characters that felt politically inevitable to me in a way that I thought was so interesting and representative of this micro generation. That's a great point. Cause actually it's like, you know, when Meadow, (laughs) when Meadow is dating Finn. um... Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. And Finn is like, Meadow, what the fuck? Like you're, like your dad is his friends are horrible like you're part of this awful system and then he's like spare me your lecture on the poverty of the mezzogiorno (laughs) Um, and she doesn't want to hear it and in as much as she doesn't want to hear it just as bunny is she is a lens who can see things that the adults the adult men in particular cannot see namely Vito being gay yeah right you know like meadow has a vantage point that these guys don't have and she, just like Bunny, she sees things that they can't see. And that's a really big narrative opportunity. Wow. That I think you're you know what I mean? You really unlock something about the book. Bunny is meadow coded. <laughs> totally. Totally. And like, just as I didn't hate Bunny, I didn't hate Meadow. I remember watching the show with other people who were like, she is terrible. Like, this girl is awful. And I was like, I mean, yeah, but like, she just wants a grilled cheese sandwich and to like sing the Spice Girls. Like, who can relate to that? You know? <laughs> You glanced on this earlier, but another facet of this that I deeply relate to is like your fucking like down in the mud struggle to find the time to write it during the pandemic <laughs> as your mother and young children. I mean, Angela Garbez, I know you're good friends with, has also been on this podcast talking about this very subject. But like, I know a little bit about like eating cold food with your hands and like mm-hmm. cheap Airbnbs. But like, <laughs> tell me, tell me about the process of writing this novel in the backdrop of pandemic wildfires and small children. Yeah, I mean, most of it. So all the kind of groundwork got laid before the pandemic started, but I didn't really. Thank God. <laughs> 
how would you have written this book otherwise? It's so like research dense. Yes. Yeah. Like I had done the reading and research, although I didn't really, I was just kind of like, I kept finding new titles and like getting them and then <laughs> would like sit in piles. And, yeah. but I had done some like really crucial research in the two years before the pandemic started, mostly like one year before the pandemic started. And then, yeah, I just, I think we moved to Portland seven months before COVID started. Jeez, is that true, Liddy? I, I, I knew that, but like I hadn't lined it all up like that. Yeah, we moved out of San Francisco. We we got to Portland in August of 2019. And then, you know, so like August and September is just like complete meltdown, like moving nightmare bullshit because my kids then were under two and four, I guess. Yeah. And then I finally, you know, they're in preschool. I kind of got into a routine. I like started writing every day. And that's when Charlie came onto the scene. I had just had the big breakthrough that I was like, I need this That character. would be a big breakthrough. I love that that's how he, that he feels like the kind of character that you're like, oh yeah, that guy, that's what we need here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I cannot really express like how little of any sort of storyline there was. <laughs> Like for a while, it was going to be about a friendship between Bunny and a, and like a woman that she went to high school with, and she was going to sort of be the foil. Like she was going to be the one who was kind of principled, and like what happened to their friendship, and they it was going to be almost maybe sort of like a romance between them. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was going to do, but then like Charlie came in, then COVID started. Then it was like, nope, no more book, no writing, because the kids were home, and I was just like, I can't do this, and I had to prioritize like paid freelance things that I could sort of do at night. And I was just like, personally, very miserable. The fact that you even kept up with paid freelance things at night under those conditions is fucking impressive. Well, I mean, yeah. there was like three of them, you know, it's <laughs> not like... Like Bunny, I refuse to not give you credit, Lydia. You worked hard. Um, thank you. Thank you for seeing me. I was working hard, but I was also just like, I was really... It sucked. It was just a horrible, a horrible time. Awful. It was so bad. Yeah. It was just, yeah, it was just like, everything was bad. Like all the things that were happening were bad. And even if you had a good situation, it was still bad. I'm sure there are some people out there who are like it was amazing and like great that's yeah. great but um so who are the billionaires <laughs> who could like start a private elementary school in their second living room yeah you know for them maybe they were insulated yeah but even you know for the white collar among us in san francisco like the playgrounds were close yeah it was dark. i'm still i'm still pissed about the playgrounds being yeah everything it was so, so shitty so then yeah i didn't work on it for five months then i went to my first cheap airbnb and actually it was like a gift that there's no silver linings to pandemic, but it just sort of like in the scheme of how books are written by what you happen to sort of like realize at that time. And so it'd be a completely different book if you, you know, if different things had happened because you realize different things or you like meet different people. And I, yeah, I had the opportunity to like, through some like volunteer stuff, I like met someone who kind of inspired the character of Sophie, um, who's like another kind of foil in the book I was like Sophie would I would be friends with Sophie yeah I was yeah. like again it's so funny how people read different things because like Sophie's sort of like the truer like leftist in yeah. the book yeah. and you know she's like very principled but people are like oh she's tedious like she's like the tedious progressive and I'm like no it's all it's all such like a Rorschach test isn't it <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing. And then the first thing that I wrote when I finally did have a chance to work on the book, because initially I had, I was also one of the things I was playing with was like how much of Bunny's childhood to show. And first it was like, I went even further back and had them in their posting in Greece. And because I wanted to write about Greece, but I wasn't sure how to put it in. And then 
I was like, fuck it. She's going to just go on vacation and like revisit this place. And she's going to have like a fun time because I was like going to this Airbnb and having a fun time in the form of like not being with my kids and like getting to work. And like, so, so much I think was shaped by like, there was a five month break. I did that Airbnb. Then there was a seven month break. And then I did another one. And then I was like, then I had real actual momentum and I was like, I'm going to fucking do this. And I went on like a little cluster over the next like four or five months, probably went to two or three other little short, just took myself away. And that's how I finished it. Can you describe in a little bit more detail, like the conditions of these Airbnbs? Like what were you eating, sleeping? I know you're writing, but like, give us, give us a little picture. Um, So I would go to the like, grocery store and buy like some prepared items and like a salami stick and a baguette Mm -hmm. and like a soft Mm -hmm. cheese I tried to make them feel like a little fancy in the form of like hors d'oeuvres and I would get like a you know bottle of wine that looked good and like some cold brew in a can and I would get a box of Popeye's chicken as my like hot my hot dish <laughs> and behavior. I just sort of was like this is like I'm will do whatever I want and I'm gonna like smoke cigarettes and like drink the wine but I would like wait you know until I had written something before I would drink the wine and there were there was a few different ones that I went to one I went to twice and it was like you know in someone's farm it was just like a prefab cabin and then there's a compostable toilet next to it compostable toilet this was a detail that I remembered from your Instagram yes Yes, I I was very unfamiliar with compostable toilets but then like three of them had compostable toilets one had a porto potty that was awful because it's just like you don't want to go in a porta potty in the woods in the middle of the night it's just a little too much not even a phone light can make that really yeah yeah yeah. one of them was an rv and that felt just a little like too close to the elements i just wanted you to describe it because like i think the kids need to know that like this is how genius happens in an (laughs) rv with a bucket of popeyes you know like eating with your hands drinking maybe after 2 p.m like this is how it happens it's not like one constant stream of genius that happens between the regular hours of like eight and four every day that's just not how books are usually made especially not by mothers yeah no i just remember those times now i'm like I mean, I know that when I was in them, there were parts that felt really hard where I just was stuck and was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And there was some like flailing that happened, but but because I had like, I had tied it to sort of a feeling of like freedom, they just felt so precious. And I like remember them so fondly now. And I'm kind of scheming like when I, when, cause now I don't, I don't have the same kind of like ex- excuse to do that. Like, but I just, I miss that. But yeah, it wouldn't. That was your taverna. You yeah. know, Bunny was in the taverna and you were in the RV with Popeye's chicken. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Well, okay. That actually, that actually takes me to a bridge of something else I wanted to talk about, which is like the general role of Bunny's body image mm-hmm. in this book. And, you know, you're very smart about this. And I know that these are like deliberate choices. And I also know that I grew up in the same sort of fucking toxic radioactive stew of body image horror Mm -hmm. that this described. Like I was literally born in 1983. Like I'm an exact contemporary of Bunny's and of yours. And I just wanted to hear from you a little bit about like how you made those choices. Because to me, they seem very connected to Bunny's increasing awareness of the male gaze, her increasing desire for power in male worlds. But like, how did you think about that? She kind of eats less and less as the book goes on. Yeah. With greater and greater fury. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, she's sort of having like the inverse of my experience, which is like being so consumed all day, every day by those thoughts. And then like slowly with a lot of help from others, like trying to think in a different way and then like having kids and then being so horrified by the notion that they would think the same way. And then basically like forcing myself to be like, we're not fucking doing that because we can't do that to our kids. This is not 1998. Yes. Not doing the, the Oli, what was it? Olia? Was that the fake potato chip fact? (laughs) Made everybody like shit uncontrollably. We're not doing that. We're not doing it. Some people are doing Ozempic. We are not, not. Anyway. Yeah. So that's the thing that's sad. It's like, on the one hand, I'm kind of like, I think things are better, but then they're not. No, of course they're not. Like, you know, I'm on my own sort of journey and I, you know, it goes in ups and downs and I have like regressions and then, yeah, I mean, I just I, like- I have yet to meet a millennial woman who doesn't have some version of that story. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I'm defensively being like, I know men also have problems, so- <laughs> but I should say Adrian didn't show up because of childcare problems, which this this group is certainly going to be very sympathetic to. But there's no men here today. Go for it. <laughs> the older I get, the more I am so horrified by just realizing so many women, like especially when you meet older women who are in a prison and jail. Like those aren't the right like prison and jail are real things. That is not what I'm describing. I'm tr- I'm trying to find like better words, but like who's daily hourly hourly like yes. thought process. Yes. You know, I'm talking like any photo is like a cause for and I have that same thing, but I'm just like you just realize how awful it is that that's deemed to be like a normal thing that that's how people will live and think about every minute and that they won't enjoy they won't enjoy joyful moments in life because they'll be worried that they looked fat or that like their skin wasn't good. Um, They go to the taverna and like nibble on leaves. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I think about that a lot and I wanted to like encode that in, in Bunny's experience because it's, it really has been foundational to my, when I think about high school and college, like, so much of it is taken up with that kind of stuff. And that feels like a real shame. It's certainly not exclusive to white women by any means, but there was something that felt very specific to white women about the sort of body dysmorphia milieu that like, you built in and around Buddy. Like, it, I keep calling her Buddy. I, I guess I'm pretty close <laughs> to her. She's my She's friend. a Buddy. She's my friend. Like, I, the, the weddings, you know, like, and the, the sort of hyper self-consciousness leading up to the wedding and what are you going to wear and how do you look and how does he look at you? Like all of that felt so intimately familiar and so embroiled with the white supremacist project of like white femininity, you know? And- yeah. And like everything, every part of it involves buying something. It's like, what, what, what do you need to spend to like get where you want to be? And I mean, and part of it, like, it's hard because I love beautiful things, you know, or what I consider to be beautiful things, like whether it's like, you know, I'm susceptible to sort of like housewares and like wanting my room to look a certain way or like gardening, just like, yeah, I love gardening. Like I wear mostly like horrible sweatpants all day, but when, when I feel that there's right now, (laughs) (laughs) But when there's like an event or when, you know, when I knew that my book was coming out, for example, I spent like six months sort of like scheming and like over time being like, oh, there's a sale. And like, I really want this frock that I saw on someone else's Instagram. Like, so I'm still like, I'm susceptible to those things. And yeah, kind of like disentangling, like what is, you know, horrible capitalist, like bullshit nightmare. And what is just like, 
a human impulse that has been with humans since humans existed, which is to like make things a little bit nice in whatever you know people thousands of years ago were like making beautiful frocks and garments right. and jewelry and like and there's something about that that you know i'm sort of like moved by but then also you know it can be it's connected to so many other things that are yeah. like not good I'm talking <laughs> about this i'm thinking that this emerges to me kind of as one of the central concerns or questions of the book is like what is the line between a human appreciation of beauty that as you're noting is essential and like deeply human and value neutral and social reproduction mm -hmm. you know so much of this book is about social reproduction the weddings for fuck's sake you know all the weddings yeah. <laughs> filled with white people who met in school you know like this is social yeah. reproduction in action which is what I, one of the things i thought was so deft about the book bunny never finds the line but there's a way in which you present this god it's so funny lydia how your greek chorus is actually in greece i was like she's so fucking clever that lydia keeping <laughs> Um, I didn't think of that, but <laughs> I loved it. Like, there's a way in which the scaffolding of the book tells us that bunnies is not the universal view, you know, but the life experience she's presenting is, is, is totally one of social reproduction, where she's totally going through motions that like force is much bigger than her prescribed. You're a very astute reader of the book. I really, it's oh, very. <laughs> I really liked it. I tore through it. It was like the, my, my like value rating for books is like, did this make me ignore other responsibilities? And like 10 out of 10 is absolutely dead. <laughs> God, when you were talking about the sort of self-consciousness leading up to book launches, I was thinking that like for the library girl, the book launch is kind of your debutante ball. Like it's kind of bigger than your wedding day in a certain, like I certainly felt hyper self-conscious about what I was going to wear to mine, you know? So like I, I relate to what you're describing there. Unfortunately, after like a few days, you're kind of like, well, it doesn't matter now. And then, you know, then it's like the hair starts to just like do you're like I'm just gonna wear my regular bun that I that I wear every day I just sort of like I feel like I designate like five outfits for public appearances that I just wear continuously in rotation for like five years and that's that's how I know I'm a mom yeah <laughs> well, just, yeah the grooming the grooming stuff I mean I again I know there's writers out there who like truly don't give a fuck and I admire them so much and you know I'm sure that they can know that something is going to happen and people are going to be looking at them and they're just like I don't care I'll just like find something in my closet but for me you know it's grooming is such a like ritualized thing for certain and again my daily grooming is negligible to like you know, not, not good. <laughs> um, but then, you know, these moments where I'm kind of like something kicks in, that's such an old like muscle memory. That's like, well, no, I gotta like, I gotta pull it together. Like I wanted to put that in bunny because I am just, I'm continuously amazed by how, how durable it is as a, um, sort of instinct, I guess. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like at, right now, like I haven't showered in two days, but like if there was a cocktail party tonight, I would show out, you know, lipstick would be on. Yes. It's, yeah. It's like a muscle memory. Um, <laughs> God, the nineties were so fucked up. The nineties were so, I don't know. This is returning to like 20 topics ago, but I do think things in terms of body image publicly are a little better than they were in the like printing people's weights in the people magazine 50 beauty 50 most beautiful people of the year whatever magazine oh edition God. but it's, it's yeah it's, it's hard hard to find a lot of progress <laughs> all right well on that uplifting note uh, <laughs> a 
appropriately to the text. The book is Mobility. The author is Lydia Kiesling. Everybody should buy it. It came out on August 1st. Is there anything else you want to add, Lydia? No, thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, such a pleasure. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.